I've been invited to um, offer a few reflections today. This is uh, <coughs> the, um, the theme of some things never change. Or, uh, uh, as the overarching theme for the day. And so um, a few things have come to mind, but I'd like to also stress just before I begin, as with all Buddhist teachings, that the things that, that uh, I say or things that are presented in the context of this retreat, everything is just for us to reflect upon. So that whether it's me speaking or Julie or uh, Betsy or Heather, that uh, we never, there's never the intention to, to speak from a, a position of expecting everyone to believe everything we say, but more just these are thoughts or themes for, for everyone to reflect on and then to, to weigh up against our own experience and to, to explore for ourselves. So it's in that, in that context or that, that manner that um, we always try to, to speak and to offer teachings and, and uh, uh, Dhamma to reflect upon. A few different dimensions of this subject came up, uh, have been coming up uh, during this time of being together. And uh, and the uh, the, uh, overall theme of of things not changing, um, and what's been one of the things that's been stressed so far is the sense of resistance to change, um, not wanting things to to be different from the way they are. And... uh, for parents, uh, when I, as I've been reflecting on this, um, that dimension of resistance is um, probably mostly concerned with uh, the anxiety over the, you know, the health and well-being of your children. That the um, that sense of not wanting things to change is uh, can revol- can resolve very easily into fear of. <laughs> Fear of things going wrong, or, or the child, your children getting sick, or, or uh, having an early death, or, or getting into all kinds of dire straits and difficulties. I was just noticing one of the, uh, the excellent cartoons on the wall here. Um, the one that caught my eye quite by chance was, uh, I think it was a Zitz cartoon where the mother and father are uh, sitting in bed and thinking, I, I don't feel like going to sleep yet. Let's watch the news. And then out of the TV comes uh, um, war, uh, uh, drug, uh, teenage drug use, alcoholism, uh, <laughs> this sort of, all these horrifying, threatening uh, possibilities for their kid come piling out of the, out of the TV and sort of crowding over the bedroom. And then the, the last picture is of the, the, the teen with a, a slightly uh, uh, startled and, and um, begrudging expression on his face with his mother and father climbed on top of him in, the be- in, his, in his bed. And the comment is, um, there's, there either has to be a really good explanation for this or this is a very bad nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Mom and dad climbing into bed with the kid just uh, so worried about what might happen to him. But like most good cartoons, it's funny, but it's also it's funny because it's real. Um, and uh, in the, the, the Buddhist teachings, uh, oftentimes um, the, the expression, um, a change uh, uh, coming over someone, 
is, is uh, taken as an, ex as an expression which means a change for the worse. So when the, the Buddha is asking King Pasenadi if, uh, if he's, would he, how would he feel if, if a change happened to his daughter, Princess Vajiri, uh, when they're, they're discussing about the sort of parent-child uh, bonds and, and uh, their nature, then that expression, a, a change, uh, is a shorthand for saying something nasty. <laughs> so uh, uh, I'm not a parent myself, but not that I'm aware of anyway. <laughs> if I have had any children, I've ever met them. <laughs> Since I've been a monk for 30 years. But, um, there'd be a, but uh, I um, have certainly been a child and uh, grown up in a family and have related very much with families over the years. And so I can certainly empathize with that um, concern, uh, deep and uh, instinctual concern that, that parents have for the welfare of the child. It's, it's like in the Metta Sutta that we chanted this morning, actually at the end of the morning sitting, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so that expression of profound, bone-deep caring of the parents for the, for the, the children is, is very instinctual and natural for us. But then that, that caring also brings with it a, a fear, a fearfulness. So I felt that might be a good area to, to reflect upon. How do we handle that, uh, the, the, the quality of caring and concern and the, the protective role? There's also... Um, in terms of the uh, a refuge, the Buddha also said that for a child, the parents, are, uh, he used the phrase, the par our parents are, uh, are what you can call the early deities or the original deities. So when you're a child, you're, you're the parent or the parents, are the, they are the, the, like the, the, the God, the, the, the divine figure, the, the goddess figure at the center of things the protector, the provider, the center of everything. And the, the, the Buddha used this, this interesting expression that the original deities are our parents. And so that later on we expand that into more sort of profound philosophical <laughs> arrangements, but oftentimes, uh, and when we create our deities often as a super parent, <laughs> yeah. but the, uh, that, that role of being a, uh, a refuge and a, and a protector, then how do we handle that without that becoming just a source of, of anxiety and fear and a sense of concern about the health and well-being and the, and the safety, the, the life of, uh, of, your, of your child? There's, there's an interesting and somewhat challenging couple of teachings that the Buddha gave uh, on this theme, and um, one was to uh, King Pasenadi, this, this one I was describing, and it's in a discourse in the middle-length um, teachings called the Pia Jatika Sutta, the born from that which is dear, those who are dear, and this, this comes up fairly regularly in the family situation. But uh, the, there's been an, a, an argument between uh, the king and the queen, Queen Malika, because She's heard it said that the, the, um, the Buddha being quoted as saying that suffering arises from those who are dear to us. And then King Pasenadi says, rubbish, you know, those who are dear uh, are loved ones, they're the source of happiness and joy. And then Queen Malika says, well, if the, if the Buddha says that, the, that our loved ones are a source of suffering, 
then it must be true. And, he's, and then in typical um, kingly fashion, he says, be off with you, Malika. You're always saying, whatever that, that, that useless monk says, you're always saying, if, if he says it, it must be true. You know, away with you. <laughs> you're, you're always agreeing with him. So there's a bit of a domestic dispute <laughs> there. And then um, Queen Malika says, well, you know, you're also a disciple of the Buddha, and uh, you, know, you respect him as a teacher, so why don't we invite him here, and, and he can explain his words. So why would he say such a thing, if indeed he said it, if he's, being, if he's not being misquoted? So they invite the Buddha around to the palace, and, uh, and then the king says, you know, I, my wife, my, my foolish wife, says that you have uttered these words, that, that the suffering comes from those who are dear to us, and uh, you know, surely this can't be right. Uh, you know, you must, surely you must have been misquoted. And he said, no, no, uh, she's quoting me accurately. I did say that. So um, she probably smiled quietly at that moment. <laughs> well, uh, the king was, was uh, huffing and puffing and, and upset. And then he asked the Buddha to explain how this could be. And then the Buddha asked this question, well, if Princess Vajiri is very dear to you, isn't she? You know, the, the princess. And he says, yes, she's the most precious and dear thing to me. And then the Buddha said, well, if some change uh, came over um, Princess Vajiri, how would you feel? Well, I'd be very upset. I'd be, you know, oh, yes, right. <laughs> and that went in, as I said, that, that sent the, the, the words, a, a change means some kind of change for the, for the worse, that she was sick or she was injured or, or, or lost or damaged in some way. Yes, I'd be very upset. I would suffer a great deal. That would be very painful to me. And then, you know, one by one, he goes through. Well, what about the, uh, the you know, the queen, Queen Malika? What about the crown prince? And then, what about your courtiers? And what about the um, the, the city of um, of uh, Savati? And what about the kingdom of Kosala? And if some change o- came over that, how would you feel? Well, I'd be very upset. I'd be very angry. I'd be very distressed. And, one, one after another after another, through this long string, you know, the Buddha was really ramming the point home. <laughs> he says, this great king is why I said that suffering is born from those who are dear. And um, so, but in that, he uses this word pia, which is transliterated into in, uh, English letters, P-I-Y-A, pia. And so that, uh, he says, suffering is born from those, those who are dear. And, that, um, and in another teaching to uh, Visaka, who was a, a great uh, lay disciple of the Buddha, the one of the most uh, eminent and wise of his women disciples, in, um, uh, also in Savati, when she came from the funeral of her granddaughter, who was really be- dearly beloved, she arrived at the Jetavana monastery with her, her hair and her clothing all wet from the, the funeral ceremonies and the ritual bathing. The Buddha said, uh, why have you come here in the middle of the day all, you know, with your hair and your clothes all wet, um, Visaka? She said, oh, I just come from the funeral of my dearly beloved granddaughter. And so I was very distressed and unhappy, so I came here to, to see you and to see if you could give, offer me any teachings. And then Visaka had, according to the legends, Visaka had 20 children, and each of those 20 children had 20, 20 children of their own. So she was reputedly a grandmother of 400 so she certainly, but even if that was slightly inflated, or thoroughly inflated, <laughs> she was um, definitely knew about family and motherhood and that, that uh, quality. So she, uh, and the Buddha said, well, um, Visaka, you know, you have many children, many grandchildren. Uh, 
would you like to have as many children and grandchildren as there are people in the city of Savati, which was like the San Francisco, Berkeley, you know, Bay Area metropolis. It was the big metropolis of the time. She said, well, certainly, you know, I love my children. I love my grandchildren very much. I'd love to have that many. And the Buddha said, well, every day in the great city of Savati, there at least 10 people die, Isaka. If not 10, then 9. If not 9, then 8. If not 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3. At least one person dies every day in Savati. So, Isaka, would ever a day pass without your hair and your clothes being wet from the funeral ceremony if you had that many children and grandchildren? And she was pretty quick on the uptake. She said, well, enough of having so many children and grandchildren. <laughs> and then he said, so the... Uh, this kind of distress and anguish is born from those who are dear. If you have 100 dear ones, you have 100 pains. 90 dear ones, 90 pains. 80, 70, 60, 50, 40, 30, 20, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. One dear one, one pain. No dear ones, no pains. So you might think, well, I've, if this is the case, I've had it with Buddhism. <laughs> but it's, it's really crucial to understand what this word pia or dearness um, it's, it's one of those many words that doesn't really have a, a perfect corollary in English. Because what it conveys is a, is a possessive love, uh, a sticky love, uh, a love which is dependent and based around uh, strong feelings of, of self. So that if there is that love, in a way love that's associated with clinging, then the Buddha's pointing out this is part of the chemistry. The more possessiveness there is, if it's sticky, then there's going to be suffering. But on the, uh, but in, in, in the same voice, as, as I was saying, like the, quoting the Metta Sutta, the Discourse on Loving-Kindness, where the Buddha says um, he's encouraging having loving-kindness for all beings and uses that example of even as a mother protects with her life her, her child, her only child. So it's not as though the Buddha wasn't extolling the virtues of love and, uh, and its beauty and its power. But whereas he's, he praises metta and karuna, loving kindness, compassion, and the other uh, Brahma Viharas, the sympathetic joy and equanimity, but particularly loving kindness and compassion, he, um, he praises that and, and encourages that. But when, you, when we read uh, the descriptions of metta, loving kindness, or we, we engage in that kind of practice itself, we see it's an expansive, limitless, and in, in the phraseology around the development of metta, we use, there are such words used as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, like in the, the chanting we were doing yesterday morning. Abundant, exalted, immeasurable. It's not sticky. <laughs> it's not possessive. It's, it's open. It's a completely open. It's still love. It's a total love. But it's love without conditions. It's love without the sense of self. It's, it's love without dependency or, or, or ownership. So, uh, I feel in, in terms of, of dealing with change, and particularly this element of change, of course there's many different ones one can focus on, that's a, an interesting area to explore, and that that uh, readiness to, to meet the fear that, or anxiety that arises, and to see where often it comes from uh, that sense of clinging and personalizing and possessiveness, that, that uh, the anxiety or fear uh, the anguish that, that comes in caring for our children, that arises from that love, is, um, is something that we don't have to live with. Now, you might feel like you learn a lot of lessons from getting really anguished. <laughs> you, might write great, write, you might write some great poetry out of that. <laughs> uh, 
but also uh, it, it tends to also create more stress within our world. It creates more of a self-centered view and more alienation from others. So I feel that's a really interesting area to explore. And then in dealing with that quality of, of anxiety, then it's helpful to, to use the meditation to work with that in a conscious way. So to, uh, and you can use meditation practices to let yourself think the unthinkable. What, if, what would happen if my child got really sick, if my child was disabled? Or if I was disabled and couldn't look after my child? Or uh, what happens if my child died young? Uh, what would I do? How would that be? How would I cope with that? So even saying the words out loud, I can feel the... Don't talk about that. <laughs> right? Don't even say that. Don't even think that. Don't, just, just don't let that into the room because... Well, isn't that interesting? We don't even want to hear the words. It's just a dumb talk. These are just mouth noises. But just the words, don't even think that. So that this is why it's, it can be really helpful to use a meditation to, to look at that natural. It's, it's a totally help, a natural uh, reactive process. But to look at that and see how can we work that? How can we, uh, like in the, the question time yesterday afternoon, how can we not just block that out or obsess on that and, and fear it, but how can we work with that energy uh, and so that it's steered in a way that benefits us and, and others? So uh, sometimes in the meditation, uh, it's a helpful thing to do to bring the mind to a quality of calmness and then deliberately invite that thought in, that, to think the unthinkable, whatever it is that, that you might be particularly concerned about or comes up in your mind, about your child, you know, the health of your children or well-being or um, fear of them becoming drug addicts or such like. To, to just bring that thought in and then to... By, because of consciously inviting it in, then just being with the, the, the physical reaction that happens in, your, in the body, the fear reaction in the body. Not to make ourselves more neurotic and obsessed, but more because of inviting that in, then we can witness and get to know that, that reactive process. And then feeling that in the body, oh yeah, this is the tension that I hold when I'm concerned about my child, and this is, this is what it feels like. And then... Uh, in developing this kind of practice, try to deliberately let go of the story, the particular imagery or, or event that you're imagining, and bring the intention fully to the body, to fully know this is what anxiety feels like. This is the fear in the body. This is what it feels like. Here, it's, this is its quality. And what we discover is the more that we just let the, the, the heart be fully attentive to that, we realize, well, that fear, that fearfulness, that anxiety, it's an uncomfortable sensation, but it is just a sensation. It's, it's not even as bad as a headache, let alone a toothache. It's an uncomfortable feeling. It's like being a bit hot or being a bit stuffy or a little bit uh, achy. But it's not that unbearable. And that to just train the heart to stay with that feeling, to know it, and then after a little while, then to be consciously letting go of it. So no longer bringing up that thought, but just using, particularly using the out-breath to let go and let the, the system calm down. So you let that whole thing cycle through uh, and using the, the out-breath to, to let things go until you arrive back at the same kind of mode that you began with. 
the, the quiet stillness that was there before you invited that thought, that dreadful prospect in. So in that coming back to zero, then you w we witness that whole coming into being. Here is this, this, um, this fear, this anxiety has blossomed. It's done its thing and it's, and it's come back to, to zero. It's come into being, it's done its piece and it's faded away. So we've been with the whole cycle, the whole process of it. So that what, what that enables us to do, when, because at that moment, your child isn't in danger, that, that you're, <laughs> you're safe in your own home. It's, it's a, a, a neutral situation. But in a way you've been able to taste the, the, the process as it's happening in a random way during the, the course of the day over and over again. So when that does happen in the normal flow of things, then as the, the belly tightens up and the shoulders hunch and the, the teeth clench, then, ah, oh, I know what this is. It's that fear reaction. Relax. Which doesn't mean you stop caring for your child or you don't do the necessary, but you're not coming from a reactive place. You know that, that fearful reactive pattern and the heart doesn't have to be swept along by that. So this is just a, a, a helpful and simple technique. But it's to do with it and really opening the heart to these um, threatening, difficult, unwanted changes, that which um, those kind of changes that we, we resist or, 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 or fear. Tell, tell a brief story, well, I'll try and keep it brief. Many years ago, there was a, a, um, there was a, a family that used to visit our monastery in, in southern England, and uh, they had uh, two young daughters, and they used to, every day the, the, the family would come and spend tea time at the monastery, and the, these two little kids, uh, Rachel and Hannah, would be um, sort of running about and climbing over the, the nuns and sort of running about in the garden playing with the rabbits, lots of wild rabbits there. And there were several other young families uh, around at the time. Now when Hannah was about two, there was a, a, um, a, an ordination ceremony and a big gathering of the community. And um, she had a temper tantrum. She was, she was being <coughs> weaned at the time and was very resistant to being weaned. And, um, she was frequently having these, these uh, very loud tantrums. And so it was right during the, 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 the middle of the ceremony, we were, we were doing the chanting for the, the blessing chants, and, uh, so, and she started screaming and shouting. And so her dad took her off to, to be uh, by herself. And so they, um, they had uh, their own, uh, in their car, their, their, their dog was there, so she thought, well, better not put put Hannah in and sit her in, in their own car, which is what they usually did, because the dog was there. She thought they were afraid she might take it out on the dog. <laughs> so he asked if he could put her in the car of another friend, just to sort of have a sort of two minute cool down. And so he, he put her in the in the car and um, and then just uh, let her be by herself for a couple of minutes and just turned to walk away from the car and the car exploded. It just and they the, the, they never found out what caused it, but it was just within seconds of her being put in the car. It was a, a, a jeep, just and it just blew up. So she was very very badly burned. Her dad went back and pulled her out, but and um, she she lived through through the night and then uh, passed away at about dawn the next day. So this was a huge uh, event, painful event within our community and all of the young families around. The, the monastery 
and um, the uh, but it was also interesting that the mother had actually had premonitions. She'd actually seen her child a year before, uh, as she was when she died. She'd had these sort of flashes, and she had a sense ever since she was born that she wasn't going to live very long. So she she was not entirely surprised, but obviously it was a huge shock and a big trauma to the to the community. So the, amongst the other young families, there was three or four other families of young children that were around the monastery at that time. They were all trying to digest this and work with it. And so, but all of them found that trying to imagine or, or to think of how they would handle that or what way they would work with that kind of a trauma in their own family, there would this, this kind of uh, instinctual rejection and shock, just as you know, was, we were just uh, talking about a moment ago. Then uh, one of the, the women, uh, Kathy, had a very vivid dream. This is what I wanted to share with you. Where she, uh, she was an, she's an artist, so she has very sort of graphic and, and colorful uh, mental imagery. And so this dream was extremely clear. And in this dream, she woke up in her own bedroom. Uh, and um, it seemed like a very normal scene. So she thought she was waking up. And then... She, uh, and then she, she turned to, to talk to her husband, and instead of her husband in the bed next to her, there was death, skeleton, scythe, hourglass, the whole thing. So she, she sort of screamed and leapt out of the bed, but she couldn't, she couldn't get out of the door. There was no hiding place in the room, and she was, she was in, in a state of great terror, and she was sort of cowering down in the corner of the, of the room, and, but no, had no place to hide. And then, she, and then after a while, she was just in this state of great tension, and she, she suddenly realized she was hearing this sort of strange noise, which sounded like sobbing. Well, who's crying? And there was a... <laughs> What's that? Yeah. It sounds like someone, someone's upset and crying. And she sort of came out of her little huddle and looked up, and, and there, was, there was death sort of sitting in the bed, going... <laughs> tears running down the skull. And she, being a mother, went over and said, what's the matter? <laughs> you know, in the usual weird dream logic, she came over and said, what's the matter? Are you upset? She says, it happens like that all the time. <laughs> it's always like this. Everywhere you go, people take one look, and then they, they, they hate you, they fear you, they run away. Can you imagine what that would be like? You know, do you think I like doing this job? This is miserable. You know, everywhere I go, people hate me, they fear me, they run and hide. I hate being there. I hate doing this job. And she, <laughs> so she felt this tremendous compassion uh, welling up inside her. And, and, uh, and, and, uh, and so then she, she came over and sort of taking a deep breath, sort of sat down ne- on, on the bed next to, next to death. And uh, it's always the same. Nobody loves me. You know, I've been doing this for, you know, un- uh, for years and years and years. Yeah. And, and no one's ever had a kind word for me. No one's ever been, ever, never been nice to me. And, and then this, this wave of compassion came up in her, and she, and she, she reached out to, to, to take hold of, of death, but she, something in her couldn't quite you know, keep her eyes open, so she closed her eyes and sort of wrapped her arms around. And as her arms wrapped around, she kept expecting to feel these sort of bony edges of the, of the, the arms and the ribs, and, but her, her arms kept closing. And then she... Hang on a minute. She opened her eyes, and there was nothing there. 
and that uh, the room, which had been dingy and gray and, and dark um, before she embraced death, and when she opened her eyes, it was like the room was full of, of, of light, and there was the curtains that were open and billowing in the wind, and, and the death was no longer in the room. So she woke, and then she woke up, and she realized, if I don't understand, if I don't get what that one was about, <laughs> yeah, I really need some help. <laughs> it was a wonderfully powerful image, you know, very graphic, um, but it's, um, it's also a very wonderful teaching in that it's a turning towards that which we would most reject, and a readiness to, to, uh, to open ourselves to that. And that, I mean, it was in a way an almost sort of cartoon-type dream. It's almost like out of a Terry Pratchett book, <laughs> where death always speaks in capital letters, and, uh, and is a bit of a uh, comical character. But it was also a very helpful teaching because uh, there was this recognition of this that there needs to be this readiness to turn towards that. But when we turn towards it, then we find that the heart has room for it, and that very turning towards has a transformative power. On the other side of the, the coin, the, in terms of things that don't change, um, the, um, one of the things that, that, uh, that we uh, use, and I addressed this a little bit in the, the morning about uh, talking about chanting the refuges and the, the namotasa, that, that kind of quality of ritual and also the, the, um, the relationship to the, to the refuges. Uh, these can be a... And as many of you know, I'm sure you have, you, you, every household here has its own rituals of different kinds of things that you do and the way that you do them. And that that kind of regularity uh, and re repetitiveness has a great power. And just as the Buddha said, the parents are the early deities. They are the, they, uh, they are the, um, the uh, early devas, the early deities, the, the original the original divine beings, because they, they, they care for us, they teach us, they feed us, they introduce us to the world. This is why our parents are the original deities. So the, the, the parent uh, is in that archetypal role of being the, the axis of the world for a child, and that that quality of, um, uh, of, of uh, regularity or ritual um, is in a similar way trying to evoke uh, a sense or wake up to trigger, to catalyze that sense for that in us which is fundamentally unchanging. The, uh, one of the things about the refuges, and I'm reflecting on this uh, actually just this morning, I was pondering this, and. The Buddha never says that the, the refuges are permanent or eternal. He never says the Sangha is eternal or, or that um, these are, you know, the Buddha Dharma Sangha will be here forever. Um, but what he does say is that even if there is no, uh, no Buddha in the world, then there is this, this one thing, there is this, this uh, the, the, the fixity, the reliability, the orderliness of the Dhamma. So that... Um, 
And also the, the way that what we mean by the word Dhamma or Dharma uh, can be a, <laughs> a huge variety of things. But uh, it can mean uh, nature, it can mean ultimate reality. Uh, uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa in, in Thailand, when he was asked to help translate the, the Bible, he translated God as Dharma. His, his, because uh, they, uh, he helped. He was a Buddhist philosopher, but he helped uh, help the Christians translate the Bible into Thai. And his word for 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 that. So it says, "In the beginning was the Dharma." And that um, he uh, uh, suggested that was the best rendition of the word God was, was Dharma. So however we hold that to be, but the, that fundamental reality, which is, uh, you can say, is beyond time. So you can say that the Dharma is the, the one quality that, is, uh, that doesn't change because it's outside of time. And I don't want to get too abstruse or philosophical, but one of the ways that we describe the, the qualities of the Dharma is akaliko, timeless. So if there's a, there, is that, there is that aspect of our nature, which is unborn, undying, which is beyond time, to which time does not apply. So that the, the qualities of ritual and then the, the, the uh, sort of taking of the refuges, they are um, qualities that help us to uh, remember, to awaken to that fundamental unchanging reality, that fundamental stability, that fundamental nature that is part of all of us. So to, to, keep, that on a, to keep it on a practical level, um, uh, one of the things about um, about say the um, uh, qualities of ritual and why they persist within the Buddhist tradition and why certain rituals like this chanting the Namotasana Three Refuges has literally been been happening in that form for two and a half thousand years because there's a power that comes with that quality of repetition. It's a, a completely uh, intuitional, instinctual power, that sense of, let's go back to the same thing, let's do it the old way, let's do it this way again, let's, let's do that, let's keep to the original. There's a strength there. And not because it's the, the object in itself, it's not because it's in the apple pie that's always done that way, <laughs> or the ham that's always cut you know, that way. It's, it's that quality of dependability, of regularity, of returning to an original form, of sustaining an original form, that in, in, a, in dozens of small ways, that helps to remind us of that, that fundamental dependability of our own nature. And uh, so, that, uh, well, one thing that we can develop in families, and I would encourage, is your own ways of cultivating rituals that very, that, I mean, apple pie is all is great, you know, it's all very well, <laughs> but also cultivating rituals that, uh, that help us to remember these very precious qualities like, uh, uh, that are represented, say, by Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, that help us to remember that being awake is, is more valuable than snoozing. <laughs> you know, that, that wisdom is, is more valuable than stupidity. Um, that, that truth and, and reality, um, being in accord with nature, is more useful than dwelling in the realm of fantasy. Is, uh, that these are... Um, these are, these are called refuges because they're a safe place. When we're awake, when there's wisdom, um, then 
we have a possibility of being in a, the heart being in accord with our nature. When we're, we're open to the way things are, rather than how we think they should be, or they could be, or they might be, or they might have been, or what, how they might have been in the past, or how they might be in the future. But uh, if we obsess on all of that, then we're always going to be slightly out of accord. When we are open to the way things are, then we have a, that, that possibility of, of true harmonizing with, with our own reality and with the reality of all things. And then refuge in Sangha is, you can, you can really reflect on this in a lot of different ways. Uh, it can be uh, valuing goodness. Sangha, in a way, taking refuge in Sangha on an internal level is ways of, uh, of respecting goodness. Uh, or another way is respecting unselfishness. Just uh, some uh, ways of remembering these qualities, goodness, unselfishness, or also virtue, sila, or that, like I, we were talking about the precepts. Um, uh, the, the skin of, of the avocado being the, the words of the precepts or the, the rule type, but also the quality of, of virtue itself, the real meat, the, the flesh of the, of the avocado and its, and its seed, is that, that pure-heartedness, that heart of kindness, the heart of unselfishness. Uh, so that I would encourage that in terms of, of using that unchangeability or regularity, dependability, cultivating your own rituals, your own ways within your lives and families of recollecting these qualities. And you can use you know, words like Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, or you can cultivate your own. But the most important thing is getting a sense for what those qualities are as living realities in our lives and, and remembering to emphasize them and finding ways of, of turning to those and recollecting them. And then, and then we see the benefit of that very directly. You know, for ourselves, over and over. And this is so that the taking refuge is not just a matter of repeating a few words, or you're memorizing, you know, the Pali, but it's a, a real. You get a real feeling for. Oh, when I when I say the word Buddha, it means this. It feels this way. Or when I say Dhamma, it means this. It feels like this. Sangha, it feels like this. It's referring to this, and that you're utilizing that. Uh, Permanence or that regular, that, that steadiness, that re, re, uh, repetition, to uh, help remind us of these these uh, central qualities, and to remind us of that the fundamental purity and beauty and uh, timeless uh, perfection of our of our own nature, whether we happen to be you know, fifty years old or five years old or five minutes old or. 95 years old, you know, the, the age of the body has no particular relevance. That we're, we are, the nature of all of us is, is uh, of a, an identical nature. It's a, a, it's a timeless, transcendent quality, I would suggest. <laughs> so these are just some reflections and some um, uh, things that come to mind around these, these themes. There's, there's uh, much more that that could be said, and I look forward to having our discussion time uh, this afternoon. Are we having a discussion time today at four o'clock? Oh, not today, tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow, okay. So the next time. But we can certainly be available to, to chat uh, every day. Tana Hingsoko and I have our, our meal uh, down in the meadow, and uh, so that people want to come along. Uh,
sometime uh, after your lunch and, and chat, then we're, we're happy to be available then or other times. Um, but these were just some themes that came to mind in terms of, of both the, the challenges of uh, things that, that we, we, uh, we're afraid of them changing, um, and then also the, uh, the blessings of, of uh, changeless, changelessness. Uh, I didn't uh, go into the um, not wanting things, uh, also of being really eager for things to change. That's another whole <laughs> subject. Uh, that tends to be more the, the, uh, in the, the kids, uh, uh, the, the restless child mind that's always looking for uh, that, uh, that next thing. To, to come, the uh, eager for change, like I'm five and three quarters, <laughs> five and eleven twelfths, you know, heading towards six, but not quite there yet. You know, there's that looking forward quality. But uh, I felt this would be uh, a helpful, most the most helpful domain for uh, to to reflect on with, with the uh, those of us with the the older bodies. So. Whatever's been useful, please take it with you. Whatever's not useful, please leave it aside. Oh, I did also have um, Betsy's story about the ham reminded me of one of my favorite stories about Ramakrishna's cat. Is this a familiar story? So Christopher Isherwood, as an English writer, went to the Ramakrishna ashram outside of Calcutta in the 1930s. And um, he uh, was very interested in the spiritual teachings of Ramakrishna and was staying at the ashram, was very interested in all the things that were going on there. And he noticed during the pujas that they would bring out a cat and the cat had a little collar and then they they had, and on the collar there was a little lead and and then the cat was tied by this lead to the puja tables in the shrine room, in the puja room. And he thought, that's very odd. I've studied all kinds of Indian mythology and they really don't make much of cats in India. So it's really interesting. What's, what's the symbolism of the cat? And why should the cat be part of this ritual? Because then all the priests come out and they start doing all the chanting and reciting all the Sanskrit and lighting the lamps. Yeah, that's all kind of familiar. I've seen that other places, but I haven't seen the cat before. And so he, he starts asking around to the different... Um, the, the other priests and the residents of the, the, the ashram, and they say, he says, so what's the symbolism of the cat? This is very interesting. He says, oh, well, we're not sure, but, you know, but um, 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 the uh, Sri Ramana, he, um, uh, the uh, uh, Sri Ramakrishna, he, he uh, always uh, said that, the, you know, that, the, that this is the way it should be done. And so ever since he's passed away, this is, we, we've always um, followed uh, his instructions, and that this is the way it's always done here. And they said, well, there must be some sort of symbolism. Didn't he ever talk about you know, the role of the cat in Indian mythology or its kind of symbolism or the spiritual nature of the cat supposed to be kind of evoking some quality? And I says, well, I'm sure that uh, Sri Ramakrishna did speak about it at some point, but yeah, can't quite remember what he said. So Ishwad, being this inquisitive Brit, keeps, doesn't, is not satisfied with that, that it's just the tradition. He keeps asking around and asking around. And finally, he hears about this very old woman who was uh, in, the, in and around the ashram when she was a little girl and was alive when, when uh, Sri Ramakrishna was still alive. So eventually he tracked her down and found it and got a translator to, to talk to her. And so he said, can you remember 
what Sri Ramakrishna said about the cat, because I keep asking all these different people and no one's giving me a convincing answer, why the cat should be tied to the shrine. And she said, oh, well, many, many years ago, long time ago, when I was a little girl, there was a cat that whenever we had the puja and Sri Ramakrishna would start chanting, the cat would go into samadhi and have ecstasies. And he would climb all over the shrine. And as the master was also going into samadhi and kind of absorbing into his meditation, the cat would go kind of crazy and would climb all over the shrine and would knock over lamps and knock over the, the shrine objects. And so one day it was causing so much of a commotion that the master came out of samadhi and he said, will somebody please tie up the cat? <laughs> so ever since then, you know, the, 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 the cat was, was tied up to the shrine whenever there was a puja because it would always get out of control. And, and then, uh, and so then Christopher Isherwood said, but surely that was like you know, 80 years ago. So, oh yes, well that cat died. <laughs> so when that one died, we just got another one. <laughs> So, and even, uh, even to that day, that they had continued to tie the cat to the shrine, even though it was like five generations later. <laughs> Did all the subsequent cats go into samadhi as well? No. <laughs> but you had to have a cat at the shrine. It became the, 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 uh, the uh, part of the ritual that you have to have a cat at the shrine, tied to the shrine, even though no one could remember the original story, except the old lady. So anyway the Indian version of the ham story. Yeah. <laughs>